Welcome to Rocktail Hour, an hour's worth of rocking good time in about 15 minutes with your buddies Tim, Treg, and Dave. We're three old guys that are a testament to the fact that rock and roll keeps you young. In each Rocktail Hour, we bring you our favorite stories behind the greatest rock and roll tunes of all times and give you other interesting musings about the music and the rockers who inspire us. Today's Rocktail Hour is brought to you by utelconcerts.com, which is dedicated to spreading the love of live music. Check out utelconcerts.com where you can read and submit concert reviews, enter contests for free tickets, view concert photos, and see an extensive calendar of upcoming shows in the L.A. area. utelconcerts.com, because when you tell concerts, it's cooler. In today's Rocktail Hour, Treg is going to bring us the story behind Purple Haze by Jimi Hendrix. Yes, this is the definitive track by the definitive rock guitarist. It's one of the classic, actually I would say the classic psychedelic drug song of the 60s as well. It was the second single that was unleashed by Hendrix in March of 1967. His first single was Hey Joe. Uh, it later appeared on the American version of Are You Experienced, which is the 1967 album released by the Jimi Hendrix Experience, which is one of the greatest albums of all time, I believe. Well, before we can talk about the song, we've got to talk about the artist, and that's James Marshall Hendrix, who is indisputably one of the greatest rock and roll guitarists of all time. His early experience, which led to his iconic style of electric blues, came from playing in the R&B clubs with such talent as Little Richard and the Isley Brothers. In 1965, in New York City, he met Chaz Chandler, who was the bassist for the Animals, and Chandler convinced him to go to London. And he played the club scene there for a little while, and French rock star Johnny Halliday uh, saw him and was amazed at his solos and convinced him to appear on a bill in Paris two weeks later. So he hastily put together the Jimi Hendrix experience with Noel Redding on bass and John Mitchell on drums. In the summer of 1967, at Paul McCartney's urging, the experience got themselves added to the bill at the Monterey Pop Festival, and they took America by storm. This was their first big appearance in America. He whipped the audience into a frenzy with his barrage of distortion-laden guitar licks, culminating in dousing his guitar at the end of the uh, set with lighter fluid and lighting it on fire. And, you know, just the crowd just went nuts. And, and everybody was talking about it, and this really launched the fame for the band. You know, a real quick interesting side light to that story is at the time, these bands were hyper-competitive with one another in terms of crowd reaction and popularity. And The Who played with them on that night. And The Who That's right. was going bananas during at the end of their set, and they did the whole traditional Who thing where they bashed their guitars and ruined the drum set and did all that. And Hendrix had to one-up them. <laughs> right. And one of the things that I think this is the same story, but backstage, one of the things that Jimmy did was he stood up on top of his amplifier, plugged in his guitar, and just started wailing on it. Huh. to the other musicians in the area. And I th I think this was the same night and the same story, but guys like Pete Townsend and Clapton oh, might, might have been there. I can't remember who was talking about this, but they said they were just floored by what he was playing. Yeah. And then he gets out and he burns his guitar, and he won up the Who that night, That's clearly. Right. And it was still plugged in, and so it just made these uh, you know otherworldly noises while it's crackling and burning. Yeah. And actually, I, I think I heard that the Who and uh, Jimi Hendrix, neither of them wanted to follow the other because they knew they were going to trash their instruments, and so they had to flip a coin to see who had to go right. on it first. <laughs> so I think uh, I think the Who went on before them, though. They did. If I'm correct. Yeah. Uh, Hendrix was really revolutionary 
Uh, he had a bold style and a spiritual hunger when he stepped into the limelight that really unveiled what Pete Townsend of The Who called a new guitar language. And Pete Townsend described uh, his playing as, he, he said that Hendrix made the electric guitar beautiful. Even the other guitarists at the time that were his contemporaries, such as Eric Clapton and Jeff Beck and, and uh, Pete Townsend, they all really admired Hendrix's talent. Neil Young once said that Hendrix showed him that you can play guitar or you can transcend it, and that's certainly what Hendrix does. Mm -hmm. Now, here was an interesting story that I recently heard that Pete Townsend, he said that he and Eric Clapton were watching Hendrix at the Scotch of St. James in London, and the performance was so powerful that they found themselves holding each other's hands during the performance. Mm -hmm. Who was this again? <laughs> Pete Townsend of The Who and Eric Clapton. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've never had an experience like that. That's that's pretty cool. That's rock and roll at its best. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> or weirdest. Yeah, yeah something. Right. <laughs> See, in addition to his virtuoso talent, Hendrix is also extremely famous and renowned for his showmanship, his onstage antics. You've got the iconic burning and the smashing of guitars. Uh, most of the sets he would play a little bit with his teeth. I think I saw on YouTube that he played one song with his tongue. And he, he would play it behind his back. And all of these things, you know, were, were gimmicks. But, you know, the, the description that I heard from, from people like Pete Townsend was that he was so mesmerizing with his showmanship that you, he just took you to another world. A friend gave me a ride to the airport this morning. And I was having a conversation in the car about guitarist with him. And uh, we had watched a, a video, and I forget the name. You guys might know it. Uh, it's The Edge and Jimmy Page and Jack White from The White Stripes. And, and they talk about music, and then they play the music. And Jack White and The Edge are great players. But when Jimmy Page plays the guitar, it's a totally different experience. Oh, yeah. And when you watch Jimmy Page play the guitar, it's hard to see where his hands end and the guitar begins. And as <laughs> I've watched videos of, of Jimi Hendrix, it's the same thing. It's almost as if he becomes one with the instrument. And I know that sounds like a really stupid thing to say. But yeah. when you watch him, it, it's almost like his hands meld into the guitar and they become one. And, yeah. it, and it's incredible. Pete Townsend said that he would, that even when his hands were flying in the air, you, he, he made you think that he was making the music with his hands. Right, yeah. Let me add a little color to what you said, Tim. As a guitar player myself, that's I've learned and played a bunch of Hendrix songs throughout the years. There's a very interesting thing that I've found learning Hendrix songs that I haven't found literally with any other guitar player. The first time I noticed it was Castles Made of Sand. And playing that song without going into the details of the musicality of it, the way he fingers the chords and the way and where he plays them on the neck, how he does the transitions in between the chords, it actually feels good on your hands. Physically, no it kidding. feels mm. good. It's almost like, you know, squeezing some silly putty in your hand or, you know, whatever, you know, maybe those little <laughs> stress balls. Yeah. Wow. There, there's a physical sensation that I remember feeling when I played Castles Made of Santa. Like, my hand just wants to do this. Wow. And I really kind of had a window into what it, to how he had this truly unique ability to feel the music and translate it immediately onto the fretboard. That's amazing. Yeah, and that's so anyway, a great story. It's, um, that's just another way of saying what you do. I that's think, a great Tim. description. I've seen some great guitarists. Well, we all have, you know, and you guys have probably seen more than me. I've seen Brian Setzer. He's a great guitarist. I've seen 
you know, Billy Gibbons, great guitarist, uh, Eddie Van Halen, you know, he's, he's great at the, at his music as well. And they're all great, but you watch people like Jimmy Page and Jimi Hendrix and some of those guys, and there's still a big, big difference. They're in a class by their own. Um, Dave, how, how does the fact that Jimi Hendrix played left-handed and upside down, how does that affect the uniqueness of his music, do you think? You know, there's actually two different ways that guitar players of that era, and maybe even today, um, played left-handed. You have Dick Dale, um, who was the famous surf guitar, surf guitar player. Yeah. He played left-handed, but he took a right-handed guitar and flipped it upside down. So now your low E string is down where typically for a right-handed guitar player is down where the high E string would be. So he's playing the bass notes on the bottom of the fretboard and the treble notes, or the treble strings, I guess, are higher on the fretboard. That's how Dick Dale did it. And the reason he did that, one reason, is because uh, right, true left-handed guitars that were made for a left-hander didn't exist back then. So what Hendrix did was something a little different and unique. He flipped it obviously over to the left hand, but he also took the bridge and he took the nut and he flipped those around as well. Oh, really? So he playing left-handed was the same kind of tactically, so to speak, as someone playing right-handed, oh. different than Dick Dale. So, you know, he didn't, you know, the, the chords he played are the same way that I would play them or any guitar player would play them in a sense, you know, in terms of the fingering. It was just done with his, the opposite hands. Interesting. And then the, the, the left-handed guitar wasn't available for him to purchase, so did he do it himself? Is that mm -hmm. what you said? Yeah. That's cool. They didn't make Fender Gibson, to my knowledge at least, didn't make back in those days a true left-handed guitar. Wow. Well, in, in, the, in just four years since he started fronting the experience, his boundless drive, technical ability, and creative application of such effects as the wah-wah and distortion forever transformed the sound of rock and roll, and he truly was a pioneer. This led a panel of top guitarists and experts assembled by Rolling Stone magazine in 2012 to list Jimi Hendrix as the greatest guitarist of all time. Like so many other great artists of his time, Hendrix was taken too early. He died in September 1970 from an overdose of sleeping medication. It might have been an accident. You know, there's no real evidence that it was suicide. I thought the conventional wisdom with Hendrix was similar to Bon Scott and, and John Bonham, that he had vomited and inhaled yep, it back in, exactly. and that's what choked him to death. That was the official cause of death, was asphyxiation from uh, choking out his own vomit. Got yeah. it. But it was caused by, he'd, he'd taken, I think, nine sleeping pills, where, um, where the usual dose is one half of a pill. So, <laughs> yeah, he, he really overdid it. And, of course, at the time, too, you know, he was, he was heavily into, into drugs and things like that, so... You know, drugs and alcohol, he abused them regularly, so I'm sure that that had an impact. Well, Purple Haze enjoyed wide acclaim. It peaked at number three on the U.S. charts. In uh, March of 2005, Q Magazine ranked it as number one on its list of the 100 greatest guitar tracks. And Rolling Stone Magazine placed the song at number 17 in their 500 greatest songs of all time. And uh, this is the number two song on their on their list of 100 greatest guitar songs of all time, second only to Johnny Be Good by Chuck Berry. Well, Purple Haze is, is more renowned for its wild and unhinged energy and creative use of effects than for its deep meaning. Hendrix wrote the song in December 1966 backstage at an East London nightclub. Hendrix had launched into the main riff while he was in the dressing room, and all the heads turned 
and everybody was just mesmerized by the sound that was coming out of his guitar. So Chas Chandler turned to him and he said, write the rest of that. That's the next single. And indeed it was. They, they put it together and, and released it as a single shortly thereafter. Hendrix said that he was inspired by a dream when he wrote the song, where he was walking under the sea and a purple haze engulfed him and he got lost. It was a traumatic experience, but uh, in his dream, his faith in Jesus saved him, supposedly. It is believed that he originally wrote the chorus as Purple Haze, Jesus Saves, but he decided against it. At least that's the conventional wisdom. That's the story. I don't know whether that's true or not. <laughs> Hendrix also stated that the song was partially in reference to a sci-fi story entitled Night of Light by Philip Jose Farmer, in which Purple Haze describes the disorienting effect of sunspot activity on a foreign planet. And it's also believed that part of the lyrics come from some of his free verse ramblings that he was known for. Hendrix claimed that the song had nothing to do with drugs and that it was just another love song. You know, you got the line in there, uh, whatever it is, that girl put a spell on me. So he claims, hey, it's just a love song, not, not about drugs. There's actually uh, one form of acid that, is, that was sold at that time in a purple capsule called Purple Haze. So it's suspect for him to say that it has nothing to do with drugs when, when that was something popular at the time. Was and, the girl in the song named Lucy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, and the lyrics in the song make it sound like an acid trip. So whether Purple Haze is an explicit reference to, to drugs and to an acid trip or not, I don't know. But he was certainly doing plenty of drugs at the time. So I imagine that, that uh, the song was at least influenced by it. The song was premiered live on January 8th, 1967 in Sheffield in the north of England. Now, one of, the, one of the most famous performances of Purple Haze was at Woodstock when his rendition of the U.S. National Anthem morphed into Purple Haze. While he was playing the National Anthem, he used feedback and sustain on his guitar to recreate the sound of whales and falling rockets. And Hendrix's image of performing this number, wearing a blue beaded white leather jacket with fringe and a red headscarf, has become regarded as one of the defining moments of the 60s. And I would say of rock and roll. Yeah, exactly. Okay. You know, you just see that picture of Absolutely. him. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, that, I remember the first time I heard it when I was really, I think, a lot younger. And I remember listening to the national anthem and saying, oh, that's kind of cool. And then getting a little bit confused by all these big, huge, long segues he was taking into all the sound effects. And then he'd come back into the national anthem. Yeah. And I wasn't really grasping it until... I realized that he was playing it at Woodstock. It was the time when the Vietnam War was raging. And obviously, as you said, you can hear planes flying overhead and crashing. You can hear bombs going off. And he was recreating the sounds of war on his guitar. And the interesting thing is, um, if you listen to it, there's a part in there where he goes, where he's going up for the, I think, one of the higher parts of the song. Yeah. And he stops and he starts playing taps. Oh, that's right. That's right. And so he's playing an ode to the fallen soldiers as well in that. And yeah. so it becomes a real poignant war protest song. Yeah. Although later, he, I think he denied that he was protesting the war. It was just, hey, it's a great American moment. You know, that's, that's what that was about. Mm. Yeah. Very cool. Well, you know, as you alluded to, Dave, this song has probably the uh, most famous misheard lyric ever in where, he, where the line is, excuse me while I kiss the sky, and it's interpreted, frequently misinterpreted as, excuse me while I kiss this guy. 
Actually, uh, there were there were times in concert when Hendrix would intentionally sing that wrong, and then he would point to his bandmate, you know, well, excuse me while I kiss this guy, and he would point to, <laughs> to the drummer. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> yeah, and and then on other times he would he would point up at the sky. So one way or the other, he was either going with the uh, the misheard, either going with the misinterpretation or trying to clarify it. I thought this would be a, a, a good time to mention some other funny misheard lyrics that were that were pretty famous from the back, from the past. Um, one of my favorites is CCR and Bad Moon Rising, where instead of the line is "There's a bad moon on the rise," and people frequently sing it as "There's a bathroom on the right." Um, you got the cars shake it up, where I always thought this was the line "Don't let nobody pick your bum," but the real lyric is "Don't let nobody pick your fun." Um, you got in Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> <laughs> You're just getting that one. <laughs> just, I'm just absorbing the humor. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> in Bohemian Rhapsody, um, instead of Beelzebub has a devil put aside for me, it's frequently understood as the algebra has a devil for a sidekick. That's me. Okay. <laughs> and of course you've got deep purple. What's what's really happening here isn't that these are often that these are commonly misinterpreted lyrics. These are just the things that Treg's always heard in his head <laughs> when he listens to these songs. And you know what that tells us, Tim? This is an ink blot test. That's right. That's right. <laughs> We're learning a lot about Treg right yeah. now. <laughs> you've got uh, deep purple, slow motion Walter, a fire engine guy. Is commonly understood for as for smoke on the water. Yeah, <laughs> for uh, Bon Jovi living on a prayer, it doesn't make a difference if we're naked or not. That's a nice one. Uh, how about you? You two's mysterious ways, misunderstood as Shamu the mysterious whale. <laughs> yeah, Where did and, you get these from? Uh, many of these uh, were my own understandings oh, okay, of gotcha. them. All right. Some of them I did get on the internet. When I was in Spain, we were at a square. My wife and I were at a square in Sevilla where there was a guy plugging in to his acoustic guitar amp and just singing, you know, rock songs. Yeah. And he sang really well and he played okay. Uh, but I could tell right off the bat that he knew zero English. But he was singing the songs phonetically as he heard them. Mm -hmm. And he sang With or Without You by U2. And the whole time he's singing these words that vaguely sound like him as we hear him, but it, instead of like with or without you, it was Micha Micha And the whole song was like this. It was it was kind of like the way we would maybe imitate Chinese or yeah. something. But he was singing an American and British songs That's like good. that. And it was pretty That's funny. Good. So last but not least, Elton John's Tiny Dancer. Um, I used to think it was Hold Me Closer, Tony Danza. <laughs> <laughs> The Who's the Boss song. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> so ridiculous. Hold me now, young Tony Danza. Right. Any of your favorites that I didn't mention? Um, Beck's a loser. Um, yeah. He he sings in Spanish there, and he says, "I'm a loser in Spanish," which is "Soy un perdedor." Oh, okay. That's what Beck's saying. "Soy un perdedor." I have I'm no a loser, idea, baby. Um, we used to think it was soiled from head to toe. Soiled <laughs> yeah. from head to toe. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a loser, babe. I'm pretty sure that's the way I sing it when I sing along, too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now I know better. Well, uh, you know, one of the other striking things about this song, obviously, is the guitar. 
from the opening chord in Purple Haze, uh, it's unmistakable. You know, you could get a hard day's night in one note, you could get Purple Haze in two, I'll bet, when you get that dissonance between those first two chords. Yep. Uh, and uh, right away, you know that there's that there's something different about this song. You know, this is 1967 when you've got the Beatles and mm -hmm. Pink Floyd, and, and they weren't playing the, the blues like this. For one of the guitar tracks, Hendrix used a device called an Octavia, which could raise or lower the guitar by a full octave. Have you ever used one of those? Yes. Yeah. Now, to create the background track that sounds distant, they recorded with a pair of headphones around a microphone to create an echo effect. And when the recording, I love this, when the recording was sent to Hendrix's American label, they put on a note on it that said, deliberate distortion, do not correct. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's a, a great song by a great artist. I know we could talk for hours about Jimi Hendrix and his influence on music, but uh, great song. You know, uh, I think guitar players, too, would cite that as kind of a top-covered song. I remember that scene in Wayne's World where he's sitting down playing guitar and he busts into Stairway to Heaven and the yeah. guy points to the sign. Right. And the sign <laughs> says, no playing Stairway to Heaven. That's right. <laughs> Purple Haze might be one of those that's, uh, you know, n probably not Stairway to Heaven, but maybe close to it. Yeah. yeah. A lot of guitar players, because it's such an unmistakable riff, want to learn how to play that. Yeah. That's funny. We were at Guitar Center today and I was thinking about Wayne's World because there were all those <laughs> guitars sitting there. I seriously almost asked one of the salespeople, does anybody ever come in and just start playing Stairway to Heaven? <laughs> so I bet you he would answer in the affirmative. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. I yeah. Bet you yeah. Um, you know, I don't have any real personal stories. I, I kind of like to share personal stories about the songs that we cover. But I don't really have anything on this one except that I, in 1984, I was working at Chuck E. Cheese. And um, <laughs> they had a guy come in. I'd been working there for about a week. And the guy came in and, he's, and he says, you got to meet Jammin'. I'm like, who? He says, Jammin. I'm like, okay. Is that his real name? No, no, he's Scotty or something like that. But we all call him Jammin. And and I said, okay. And and he came in and he was just this quiet guy. And in fact, he was he was the guy that wore the Chuck E. Cheese suit when he wasn't on vacation, you know. And he was he was older than us. He was a really old guy. I think he was like 25, you know. <laughs> and uh, he was really quiet and really serious, and everybody called him Jammin'. And so one day I kind of got the courage to walk up to him. I've been there for a couple of three months. Why does everybody call you Jammin'? He says, because I like Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> and that's my story about Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> Nice epilogue. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, Treg. That was a great rock tale hour about a great rock and roll artist. Please email us at dudes at rocktailhour.com if you think we got it all wrong, if you have an interesting rock tale hour of your own, or if you have a recommendation of a song that would be a good subject for the rock tale hour. If you think we're just lame, as always, please keep that to yourself. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and we'd appreciate it if you rate us on iTunes. Also, please contact us if you want to buy the next round at an upcoming Rocktail Hour by becoming a sponsor. Until the next Rocktail Hour, rock on. <laughs>